0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Caritha Mitchell, who's the author of From Slave Cabins to the White House, Homemade Citizenship and African-American Culture. This book was just published by the University of Illinois Press, and it is a fascinating, beautiful book exploring our understanding of citizenship, as well as how that is connected to African American life on this continent for the last 400 years. But I'm going to let Karitha tell us a bit about that. I'd like to welcome Karitha Mitchell to the New Books podcast and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this particular project. Hi, Karitha.
0: Hello, Lily. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to speak with you today. So yes, my name is Karetha Mitchell. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the author of From Slave Cabins to the White House, Homemade Citizenship in African American Culture. And um, basically, I am a literary historian and cultural critic. So I'm just really interested in discourses and practices. I'm interested in American's most common words and deeds and how those shape our experiences. And that has certainly led me to being very interested in citizenship. Um, How people's experiences go when their citizenship is assumed and taken for granted and how their experiences go when they are excluded as a matter of course and when they are constantly made to feel like they don't belong. And so, this book is really an exploration of that. Um, and, you know, the story of how I came to write this book is really a simple one because so much of it came from what I learned from writing my first book, Living with Lynching, which explores plays about lynching written before 1930. And the main thing I learned in writing that book is that African Americans became targets of the mob, not because they were criminals. But because they were successful in some way and thereby needed to be put back in their so-called proper place by, you know, straight white men who believe that they had a right to property and citizenship and everything else they might imagine. And so not only do you kill a successful um, head of household, but you also terrorize his entire family and community to remember their proper place. So if you thought that you should be able to vote after 1870, for example, then we're going to terrorize you because you voted and terrorize your entire family. So because I learned that Black people became targets of the mob because they were successful in some way and thereby needed to be put back in their proper place, I wanted to explore what it would mean to read African American literature and art with that knowledge. In other words, if African Americans knew that they were targeted because they were successful, and again, studying lynching plays showed me that that's something that African Americans absolutely knew. (laughs) If they understood that they were targeted for their success, then what would that mean for how we should be reading? African-American literature and art. I think it means that we have to read it through the lens of success because if they know that they'll be targeted for success, the question becomes, how do they continue to be so invested in success themselves and so invested in helping their community members stay invested in pursuing success? And so what From Slave Cabins to the White House essentially does is it offers a reading practice. It offers a way of looking at the literature and art through the lens of Success. And how does that change your reading of these texts? And my book just offers basically case studies of what that means to read through the lens of success from the slavery era on up to Michelle Obama and her public persona as first lady. I take seriously her public persona as first lady in terms of reading her decisions about hair, clothes, bodily presentation, how she decorated the White House. So, from slave cabins to the White House, reading canonical Black women's texts through the lens of success,
1: and and very specifically, you make note that this is about the the Black women, um, and that the the sort of embodiment of an understanding of this kind of success and citizenship from a perspective of the Black woman, as opposed to necessarily black men, um, although they are also embedded in the discussion. Um, But I wanted you to talk a little bit about the sort of trajectory that I I saw throughout this this wonderful book, um, discussing how African American women were the house slaves, the housekeepers, but not the homemakers.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for that. I mean, I guess the first thing you have me thinking about is choosing Black women as the lens for looking at success and why that's so important, right? And of course, that is crucial to me because as Kimberly Crenshaw has taught us, um, when you examine people who live at the intersection of more than one oppression, you gain insights that help you understand those who um, live at intersections with less traffic. So to look at Black women is to recognize how do they create their strategies of perseverance while they're facing both racism and sexism. And so looking at Black women becomes crucial from this standpoint, but you're absolutely right to look at the fact that in the United States, Black women have been house slaves and sometimes accepted as housekeepers, but never recognized as homemakers. And the reason that becomes important to me is, first of all, it demonstrates that intersection of racism and sexism together. Um, But also it became important for this exploration because it is so clear Once you start looking through the lens of success, that Black women have succeeded at being homemakers, but their success at being homemakers is the reason that they are attacked. And so... Part of what happens when you read through the lens of success is that you see that it's not about their journey to become homemakers so much as it's a journey toward having their homemaking success be respected rather than attacked. So one way I can make that concrete for your listeners is just to think in terms of the way that in the slavery era, you know, I use incidents in the life of, as a, of a slave girl as one of the early examples. And what happens is it's clear that Linda Brent, as the persona for Harriet Jacobs, Linda Brent has very clear ideas about what it means to be a homemaker. And she is marching toward that definition of success. And every time she goes in the direction of it, she gets opposed with Aggression, and so there's a way in which part of what we have to recognize is that Black women have these definitions of success, and whenever they resemble what white people deem to be their, um, deem to be something that only they should enjoy, then those become even more. Um, intense sites of violence. But even when Black women achieve a kind of homemaking that doesn't look traditional, they're attacked. So part of what taking seriously house slaves, housekeepers, homemakers does is it allows us to see both the way that Black women have achieved being homemakers in ways that look traditional and ways that don't look so traditional. Because the truth is this journey has shown me that African Americans are a lot more invested in nurturing intimate bonds than they are in having household configurations that look a particular way. But all of their achievements are attacked. And if we can start to focus on success, I think we can start to see that in some cases um, you know, they have an achievement that we're not recognizing simply because the erasure of that achievement is part of the violence of U.S. citizenship.
1: And that erasure is one of the aspects that you both introduce at the beginning of the book, and then you talk about it throughout in terms of understanding how the narrative around Black women as homemakers has been so completely othered. Um, and, and sort of taken away in a certain sense by all of these stereotypes. Um, and, and you bring it up as well, obviously, in terms of, um, the last section with regard to Michelle Obama. Um, and I was really fascinated by that, um, because I've been intrigued by her as a sort of representative individual of feminism, Um, and Black success um, since I came to know who she was. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about this kind of erasure and othering and subverting of, you know, the sort of success tied to homemaking?
0: Yeah. And it's such a crucial, thank you for that question because it's so crucial. And I think that, you know, American culture is designed to not only do the erasing of the traditionally defined success of Black women, but also to make us completely um, unaware of it. (laughs) Like we're not even (laughs) supposed to notice that it's being erased because we're so taught that it doesn't exist at all, right? (laughs) So part of the way that the way that you frame that question for me is so powerful is When it comes to Michelle Obama as an example, part of what we have to contend with is her being in the White House as woman of the House doesn't inspire a kind of cultural move toward lots of popular culture around representations of Black women who are both Mothers and wives. You don't get this proliferation of popular culture representations of what we would call mocha moms, right? There's an actual organization called Mocha Moms that acknowledges that there are stay at home Black uh, wives. But Michelle Obama's prominence doesn't lead to a whole slate of representations of mocha moms. Instead, we Respond to that moment of her being in the national eye with this unavoidable explosion around the help. You have the help as a novel in 2009 and the help as a movie in 2011, and all along the way, you have the help in terms of cookware, cookbooks. I mean, it's just this entire explosion that you couldn't avoid seeing if you try, because I am someone who will try to avoid seeing it, okay? (laughs) But you can't avoid it. So here we are with a Black woman in the White House for the first time as something other than a servant, but you don't have American culture respond with representations of Black women who are both mothers and wives. Instead, you have this explosion of representation of them as the help as maids in the 1960s. And to my mind, this is a parallel move to what happens in the 1890s, when you have this explosion of representations of the Black mammy. So in the 1890s, Black women are removed from enslaved labor, but that ends up becoming the moment in the 1890s where seeing them put back enslaved labor becomes this wonderful thing that we should do and have, you know, the proliferation of the mammy figure, um, Aunt Jemima, like all of those kinds of representations get a new life. And it's precisely because American culture wants to remind Black women, in this case, of their so-called proper place. They should be enslaved labor, even if it's the 1890s. They should be housekeepers, even if it's 2009. But they should never be homemakers, even as you have Michelle Obama in the White House. But the other thing about the brilliance of your question is that, you know, this othering and erasure, we also need to think of it in terms of, let's say, Um, the 1950s and 60s, when a lot of the discourse is still being inspired by the Moynihan Report that basically says that Black women are matriarchs who are emasculating Black men. And there are lots of ways that this discourse floats around. But what's important for my purposes in this book is to think about the way that If you are a Black woman in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and you are in a traditionally defined heteronormative nuclear family, and you are literally the embodiment of what the nation says it respects in terms of being that, you know, submissive wife and mother, even if you are living up to that image, you are still absolutely erased because depictions of black families as pathological and of you as a matriarch, or later of you as a welfare queen, those representations are constantly going to erase your very existence. It doesn't matter that you actually exist in the configuration that the nation claims it respects. The nation is constantly erasing your existence in its mainstream culture, in it's every representation of black family life. So to me, that's the other way that really taking seriously black success allows us to see what American culture is geared to do. It's geared to erase the truth of those, even when um, those black families live up to what the nation claims it respects.
1: That was one of the mo- most interesting points that you wove through this in terms of really thinking about how, as you say, that African-Americans kind of embrace this heteronormative nuclear family as a kind of structure of success in America. And they did it. And they didn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And I was sort of stunned. And then I was like, yeah, that's pretty much what history and popular culture has told me. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and it, it is, you know, it is kind of amazing to think about that in terms of your research and what you're talking about here. Um, but it, it is a, a really important and, and sizable point in terms of understanding what you're calling sort of the politics of representation that we're seeing through these various, as you call them, canonical texts. So I'd like to bring you to some of these texts um, beyond Michelle Obama as text Mm -hmm. um, that you use to sort of reflect some of these concepts of, you know, sort of where we see um, Black women as trying to make citizenship as you say, homemade citizenship, but also where the struggle really is in terms of violence and and how that complicates success.
0: Sure. So one thing I'll do, though, is back up just really quickly sure. with um, what I think is so important about kind of your summary just now about... Um, here you have these black figures that embody what the nation says it respects and then american culture makes sure that they don't exist (laughs) in american culture and i think that part of what was so powerful for me with grappling with that reality as i saw it laid out again and again over the course of the study was the way that these canonical texts are invested in showing us the violence of that move but i also think that when they show us the violence of the move of erasing even those who live up to what the nation says it respects, part of what showing that violence does is it gestures toward how much People who understand that violence against those who conform in every way, if you understand that conforming in every way will bring violence to you, then how much more do you see the value of, for example, queer intimacies? You can't help but see the value of queer intimacies and the way that queer intimacies are attacked, too, because you see that even those who conform are attacked. So then it makes even more sense to you to understand the race. Range of violence that Black people are, are going to be subjected to, that it's because of who they are rather than the behaviors, right? So basically, when you understand that being the embodiment of heteronormativity doesn't save you, then it gives you even more reason to be in solidarity with your queer brothers and sisters and siblings, because you understand that it's not behavior that's being recognized as U.S. citizenship and as a right to belong. It's not behavior. It's all based on demographic. And that makes you even more invested, I think, in being in solidarity. At least that's certainly what this study did for me. It made that even more um, clear why we need to invest there. But in terms of the text, I mean, as I said, I begin with incidents in the life of a slave girl, 1861. And in that same chapter, looking at Elizabeth Keckley's behind the scenes or 30 years a slave and four years in the White House, which reflects the fact that Keckley is um, Abraham Lincoln's wife wife's dressmaker. And so in that first chapter, we move from um, slave cabins to the White House. And I go each decade after that, looking at other canonical texts. So for example, um, Iola Lee Roy by Frances Harper, and Contending Forces by Pauline Hopkins. Those are 1892 and 1900. So it's kind of a chapter about black domestic romance and looking at success there. And then into the new Negro era with um, Nella Larson's Quicksand and Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. And, you know, to my mind, part of what's important about these canonical texts is that when you look at them through the lens of achievement, part of what you see is how these texts are talking about how black communities are defining achievement. And so part of what happens is in the 1890s and early 1900s you see that these texts are showing the way that achievement is being defined around the black mother and how the black mother as a figure wanting rights for black mothers ends up being the way that you struggle for political legitimacy. But when you transition into the 1920s and 30s what you find is that the black mother is being put on the back burner for defining the community's success. And instead the community is starting to gauge its success based on the male worker. And so part of what happens in looking at success as a lens is that we get to see from chapter to chapter the way that these black woman authors are intervening in a community conversation that's defining success. And very often what they do is they show how the community's kind of dominant definition of success sometimes isn't creating enough space for Black women in particular. Am I going in the right direction in terms of answering yes. your question? Yeah,
1: but I did because you you'd brought it up and I have it listed in my questions that I wanted to ask you about, um, is this idea of the community conversation, which you also thread through the book and the discussions and the analysis in terms of something that black Americans over the course of 400 years have been having, um, that is also sort of done outside of, you know, white people watching, shall we say. Mm -hmm. Um, and I would, really love for you to define what you mean by this community conversation and how it figures into this discussion also of success and achievement.
0: Oh, what a beautiful question. Yeah. So for me, community conversation is really a methodology, right? I'm thinking of community conversation I'm thinking of Black culture more generally um, as being produced by this community conversation, and it includes literally everything. (laughs) It includes words and deeds, but it also includes gestures, facial expression, right? So when I say community conversation in the text, I'm talking about something that's all-encompassing that is about how do we define well being um, and how do we define the community? And so, part of what I'm arguing in the book is that the community conversation is literally what makes us a community. And because I believe that Black culture is created by this community conversation that's actually always been geared towards success, part of what we start to understand is that success is always debated. And again, what I learned from writing Living with Lynching is is that we have to understand debate itself as an embodied practice of belonging. Part of the reason I know I belong in the black community is because I care enough about that community to debate about um, how we're defining success. So the community conversation in this book is a tool for us to understand how dynamic, the conversation is that actually makes Black communities happen because it's not as if it's rooted in identity or biology, right? We understand that community is made out of the practices, it's made out of shared knowledge and shared experience and practices like the debate that make us, commu- us a community. But what I'm invested in is if we really understand what it has taken. Africans and descendants of Africans in the United States, what it has taken for us to survive and thrive. If we understand what it's taken, we understand that it's taken a focus on success, despite how much you're attacked for that success. So as I study these canonical texts, I'm looking at them as just one small segment of a larger, more dynamic community conversation. But if we use This cultural production as a lens to look at the community conversation, which is much bigger, we start to understand the kinds of contours that conversation has had over time. And again, because... It is the practice of debating that has made Black people a community, despite all of our differences of experience and background and economics. I mean, any difference you can name, there is that difference in Black communities. But we, con- we cohere as a community through our investment in practices, including practices like debate. So for me, the literary texts are just a slice of that.
1: And the the sort of coherence as a community also goes to the discussion that you have about this idea of citizenship. Mm-hmm. Um and and your terminology in the in the subtitle of the t- of the book itself is homemade citizenship. And I see this as connected to also this understanding not only of success, but particularly of being in this place that is now the United States um, and, and how um, Black Americans have been sort of working in their, their, the communities in which they live to define their own understanding of citizenship because the legal understanding of citizenship is not one that they are allowed to fully participate in.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for that. I mean, so homemade citizenship is such a crucial concept for me because, you know, we we believe that we're operating with this social contract idea, right? You um submit to um a government that will protect your person and your property. But Black people can conform and submit and obey the law and do everything the nation says it's going to respect. They can do all of that and still not be able to take for granted the protection of their person or their property. And so part of what homemade citizenship means then is that, you know, if, if we're comparing kind of a, a box cake versus a from scratch cake, right? Um, The box cake would mean that I could at least take safety for granted for my citizenship, but black people can't even take safety for granted. So how could I possibly have this box cake citizenship. No, 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 no. Mine has got to be from scratch. I can't even take safety for granted. So for me, what homemade citizenship is about is it's about allowing us to have a language to understand that even when Black people seem to be conforming in every way in their march toward um, success, it can't be that they believe in something as straightforward as the American dream. It can't be that because they know that whenever they achieve anything like the American dream or anything that resembles what white people believe belongs only to them, anytime black people achieve that, it makes them a target. So if black people know that, then the things that they do can't simply be about this framework of American citizenship U.S. citizenship, political um, recognition, it can't just be about civic inclusion. It's gotta be about something else. And so to me, homemade citizenship gestures toward that something else that is about belonging. Because, I mean, as a straightforward definition, I define homemade citizenship as this deep sense of success and belonging that doesn't rely on mainstream recognition or civic inclusion. So what I'm after there is something like belonging that is a little bit more amorphous. But part of what's important about it is that it necessarily has to do with an authority beyond the nation state, if I'm going to feel like I belong, if I'm going to feel that it has to be based on something other than what the nation state is telling me, because the truth is U.S. citizenship is literally built on the exclusion of African-Americans as almost a definition. The other reason that you know, belonging and something more amorphous like belonging is so crucial to me in thinking about homemade citizenship is because if African-Americans were only invested in US citizenship, then that would mean that their moves toward a sense of belonging would simply be um, identical with settler colonialism. And while I don't think that African-Americans are free of settler colonialism or aren't contributing to its violences, I don't think we get to come clean in that way. While that's still um, true, I do think that there is something beyond U.S. citizenship that that African-Americans have been cultivating. So homemade citizenship gets me to at least acknowledging that there's something more going on there because if it were only about civic inclusion and only about mainstream recognition, then Black citizenship would simply just be identical with the violence of silo-colonialism. And I think that there's something more there to be appreciated.
1: And and I wanted to ask you a little bit more about this question of violence um, and, and also in terms of narrative construction, because you note that the a lot of the sort of embedded narratives in the United States, particularly the ones that most white people sort of are used to or sort of fall back on, Is the sort of linear trajectory um, of civil rights. Mm -hmm. Um, But that your analysis in um, From Slave Cabins to the White House is more about the fact that the violence is often in response to Black success um, achieved in a variety of ways, and it's not the sort of impetus for the civil rights movements or the sort of shift to a different sort of tactic by African-Americans pursuing citizenship that in fact, most of us have it backwards in terms of our understanding about the role of violence with regard to sort of situating Black Americans.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for that. (laughs) I mean, and that really is one of the key um, insights, I believe, of the book and really what inspired the entire <laughs> the entire study, right, is that I think that, you know, we're all taught to approach um, specifically Black literature and art um, and Black history, really. We're, we're all taught to approach it as a kind of secondary thing. It's like, you know, lynching and anti-lynching activism, segregation and anti-segregation activism, just this constant um, approach that says that black people protest primarily. Um, And what what I'm finding is that anti-blackness should be our first clue that blackness is primary and white violence is the reactionary project, right? We speak in terms of anti-Blackness, but then we act as if Black people are always responding. No, it's the anti-Blackness that's responding, which means white supremacy is the thing that's responding. And so, yeah, I'm very invested in us thinking about Why is it so important that we've all been taught to approach Black literature and art as protest primarily? I want us to understand even that lens as part of the erasure project, part of the project that insists on the secondary nature of marginalized groups, when in fact it's dominant discourse and practice that knows that it's not dominant. But that's why it keeps springing into action by every sign that it's not dominant. It keeps reacting to try to suppress all of the evidence that it is not what it claims to be, which is dominant. So yeah, thank you for highlighting that, because that's absolutely the orientation of the study, is to understand that Black people, specifically in this book, but marginalized groups more generally, um, are the primary and that it's the dominant discourse that is leaping into action as a reaction to all of the success and all of the assertions of belonging of those marginalized groups.
1: And and in that regard, I, I would love to circle back to um, a couple more of the case studies that you outline in the book in terms of the literature and art that is in fact reflecting Black success during the 20th century. Um, you talked a little bit about Zora Neale Hurston um, and, and sort of where the, the sort of narrative stories and literature were moving in terms of the early part of the 20th century. But could you give us a couple more examples of the literature that you're reading, um, some of this success narrative within? Absolutely.
0: Thank you. Um, And so I basically spoke about chapter one, two, and three at the beginning, and then with chapter four, I'm looking at canonical dramas. So Lorraine Hansberry's A Raisin in the Sun and Alice Childress's Wine in the Wilderness. And part of what's important there is we think of Raisin in the Sun as a civil rights play and as a move toward Um, refusing segregation. But in fact, when we look through the lens of success, what we find is that there is an intense debate happening in the younger household about how to define success. And when you take that debate seriously, you start to see the way that Benita, as a young single Black woman, really represents a pan-African definition of success, a feminist definition of success, um, that we don't notice if we're not looking for how success. Is being defined. And a similar thing happens in Childress's Wine in the Wilderness. Again, you have a single Black woman in the character of Tommy, and she is very much offering a critique of the Black Power movement ideology, the Black is Beautiful movement, as it's being articulated at the time to kind of elevate um, the natural as a hairstyle that Black women in particular will be able to show you whether the success, whether the race is having success because if they have not been brainwashed, they will wear their hair in a short natural Afro. And Tommy, as a single Black woman, ends up offering a, a, a serious critique in which she basically suggests that if the way that I look as a woman matters to you more than my thinking, then is it so different <laughs> from the 1920s when the pedestal was given to black women who straightened their hair. (laughs) So again, it's like if we take seriously how definitions of success are being debated for the race, then a lot of times what you'll find is that these black women authors are highlighting how there is always a debate and very often black women are pushing against what has become the dominant definitions of success in their communities and really caring enough about those communities to debate the definitions. And so then in chapter five, we um, are looking at canonical texts of the 1970s and 80s that look back to the slavery era. So there it's Octavia Butler's Kindred and Toni Morrison's Beloved. And that chapter is important for me because it's one of those moments where we can gesture to definitions of success, both inside and outside the text, as always is my goal, right? So that um, these texts are written at a time when Alex Haley's roots is really kind of defining the community definition of success. And these two authors are coming back to offer a challenge that says any of our recognition of slavery's enduring um, impact on our communities has to take Black women's experiences in slavery just as seriously as it takes Black men's experiences. And that for me was what ended up being so Eye opening. Uh, Again, what I'll admit is that reading through the lens of success was eye opening for me too, right? Because I've been educated, I've been educated like everyone else to approach this literature and art looking for protest. So, very often using success as a lens was eye opening for me. And um, that is what ended up making the exploration of kindred and beloved so. such a different experience is that you really started to see the way that Octavia Butler and Toni Morrison were using these moments in the 1970s and 80s to look back at how slavery was being discussed in their current moment and what we know about the slavery era. Um, And then, as you said, the last chapter is about Michelle Obama. I take seriously her decisions about hair, clothes, bodily presentation, and also the artwork that she used to decorate the White House. And that way, she very much was building on what Jacqueline Kennedy started with a kind of program of borrowing artwork to decorate the White House. But it was very clear in her decisions that she knew that her first Family was a Black first family, and that would make a difference in the responses that every decision she made would have. And then, of course, the book ends with a coda from mom in chief to predator in chief. And I think that this is where we get back to your important point about the way that our country loves stories about linear progress. But um, this study makes it very clear that because Black success, Will attract violence as often as praise. Part of what we find is that you can't just have a linear, there's often a back and forth. And so it seems to me that having had a black first lady in, you know, Michelle Obama, who called herself mom in chief, there were many Americans who saw that and wanted to make sure that that would be replaced. And they, 63 million Americans, succeeded in moving the country from mom-in-chief to predator and chief And so we absolutely are not in some kind of linear progress moment. We are still in a moment where the erasure of successful Black women is part of the project of American culture more generally. I mean, one of the things I end up saying outright, and I stand by it, is that American culture has very consistently argued that the American dream may be for straight white men who hurt communities and hurt institutions, but it is definitely not for a Black woman of achievement.
1: And and that was, again, one of the fascinating sort of concluding ideas that I found, again, sort of upturning or overturning or pushing aside a lot of the regular thinking on this, you know, the American dream can be achieved by anybody. Look, Barack (laughs) Obama was elected president. Mm -hmm. Um, and then of course, as you note, um, sure. (laughs) Um, we have a reaction to that.
0: Very much
1: so. If you could just give one or two examples, because the chapter on Michelle Obama, so fascinated me. And in reading your acknowledgments, it sounds like you also wanted to include it, but you needed to sort of reconceptualize how you thought about her um, and her position within this sort of narrative that you've you wrote in the in, you know, from slave cabins to the White House. I would love for you to just give one or two examples of, of her consciousness about being the Black first family.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, um, You know, what I admit in the acknowledgements is that I never thought she would be in this book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I had been writing some things about her and had imagined that I would write a book about her specifically. And so I never thought that that material would go into this book. But I guess the best way to answer your question is that she is part of how I understand the way that even as these... um, Black women's canonical texts sometimes clearly address a white or mainstream audience. As first lady, she clearly addresses a white or mainstream audience, whether she wants to or not. The same goes for incidents in the life of a slave girl. We know that Harriet Jacobs was trying to recruit white women in the North to be abolitionists. Um, We know that Lorraine Hansberry's *A Raisin of the Sun was on Broadway. So clearly it addresses a mainstream audience. So part of what your question gives me an opportunity to do is acknowledge the way that even when Black women's texts clearly address a mainstream audience, I want us to have the tools to understand how they, at the same time, always are contributing to a community conversation that is debating the definition of success. So part of what happened for me with Michelle Obama was to recognize that she's part of a really long tradition. As I watch her make these careful decisions about hair and clothes and bodily presentation, there's no question the way that she's in conversation with Black club women of the 1890s and early 1900s. They also were very deliberate. These more educated Black mothers were teaching less educated Black women and mothers how to you know, decorate their homes, how to wear their hair for the good of the race, how to comport themselves, how to dress. I mean, they went directly to all of those issues all for the good of the race. And so when you understand that Michelle Obama, you know, to pay attention to what she's doing with hair and clothes is not just to be frivolous, which is what some mainstream feminists suggested at the moment. Um, It's not about just being frivolous. When you understand Black women's history of being shut out of womanhood, for example, that you know that there is real political uh, questions around her decisions. I mean, one of the things I say in the book is that we can pretend that her decisions about her hair are frivolous as long as she's making the right decision. If she had actually gone natural, um, during her first lady years, we would have found out really quickly that that's not such a frivolous decision at all because then it would have been really easy to insist that she's anything but American, which is of course what the um, supposedly satirical cover that put her in an Afro with you know, bullets over her shoulder and um, her husband in Muslim garb, like that's what that cover was all about. The idea that they were succeeding At convincing lots of people that they were just a plain old American family. And since you're succeeding in convincing people of that, how do I make you seem completely anything but American? And so, if she had made different decisions about how to style her hair while being first lady, then that would have been even easier. To do. Um, the argument I make about her clothes is how remarkable it was for her to continue to present herself as basically a J. Crew mom <laughs> and appeal <laughs> to the middle class, even as she's first lady. But the fact that she succeeded in doing that is a real um, picture of just how much labor is going into her very deliberate construction of that text of her public persona. So those are a, a couple ways that that, that plays out.
1: And, and again, this is a really interesting chapter. I I have I wrote a long time ago about the way that both Barack and Michelle were commodified um, upon sort of their entry into politics. And this is, you know, another dimension of sort of understanding the complicated decisions that they both had to make about how they present to the public
0: absolutely um,
1: and and uh, this is such a a wonderful and and deeply analytical book i really really enjoyed reading it so i'm going to ask you karetha what are you working on now Ooh, well
0: <laughs> <laughs> i actually have at least three ideas um First of all, I am under contract to do a scholarly edition of Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, so I'm slowly but surely making progress on that. I haven't completely given up on the idea of a project that is 100% about Michelle Obama, so that continues to kind of be in the back of my head. Um, But I also have been inspired by what seems to be a real um, renaissance in Um, Black memoir. And so I'm starting to toy with the idea of a memoir um, in essay form about my um, about my kind of adult and professional life, the development from undergrad to um, being a professor. So I'm toying with those three ideas and kind of dabbling in all three and we'll see how the progress goes with each.
1: Well, when one of them hits fruition, I hope that you'll come back and talk to me about it on the New Books podcast.
0: Thank you so much. I so appreciate it, Lily. This was such a pleasure.
1: It's my pleasure to have you on today. I'd like to thank Caritha Mitchell for joining me to talk about From Slave Cabins to the White House, Homemade Citizenship and African-American Culture. This is published by the University of Illinois Press. I assume it's available at the University of Illinois Press's website. any place else anybody wants to buy a book. So thank you for joining me today.
0: Thank you. Have a good day.
1: You too.